You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That, that's perfect. I grew up knowing where my mom was when she learned that JFK died, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, Elvis. Because she told me. It was part of her story. It was a big deal. I remember her on the phone talking about how John Lennon was gone. That's how she said it. He was gone. She was using the kitchen phone but had the cord stretched into the dining room. And I remember the Christmas tree was up. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. <laughs> Mine was the challenger. My mom was waiting for me at the door when I got off the bus from school, and she hugged me so hard, and that's when it became real for me. I remember she had vacuumed that day, and when I got home, the carpet still held the vacuum lines. I saw the lines over her shoulder when I was caught in her arms, my backpack still hanging off one shoulder, coat and boots still on. I was watching with my whole third grade class when the Challenger exploded. I remember the anticipation, the collective gasp, and the experience of mass confusion and shock that permeated the room. Mrs. Johnson's, oh no, and the tiny expressions of horror all around me. I was lucky enough to grow up with my grandparents and great-grandparents, but they never talked about where they were for Pearl Harbor. I see now that I never asked, but I do remember my father telling me that his parents' generation didn't like to talk about that kind of thing. As a kid, though, I feel like that's all every adult ever talked about. Bad things that had happened, the past. Have I told my daughter where I was on the morning of September 11th? Not specifically, but she may have heard me tell the story. I'm not sure. Her whole life has been access to streaming news 24-7, so we don't reminisce much about the past. The present wrongs, the bad things take up most of dinner. Here's what I remember. When my friends and I made it back to our hotel at Disney World in Florida on the morning of September 11th, we saw the North Tower collapse in real time on television. We heard the news reporters and anchors' voices giving way to pitched confusion, saying things you hear in real life like, oh my God, and what is happening? They sounded human, and that was terrifying. So yeah, I was at Disney World on 9-11. You had to search for news back then, flip phones. Most people still had landlines. We bought the paper, watched primetime news at 5 and 10 o'clock, and there was no way you were going to get news at the most magical place on Earth. This was all before, by the way, I was really mad at Florida, so that just seems worth mentioning. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are 
The friends I was with were also my co-workers. We were actors in a show that we had been rehearsing at the Brave New Workshop called Sex in the Cities, the Edina Monologues. <laughs> See, it still, still gets a laugh. Edina still gets a laugh. Was that supposed to be a play on the vagina monologues? Yes. Oh, it was yeah. a play on Sex in the City and the vagina monologues. Wow. I know. Our trip was a highly researched, well-earned, an extremely efficient vacation that took place between the last preview on Sunday and before our next preview on Wednesday. And the show would open on that Friday, and it must have been in good enough shape for us to fly all the way to Florida and use our Disney Fast Passes and ride all the rides and eat all the food and see all the sights on Monday and Tuesday, and then fly back on Wednesday in time for the show. Air travel was different back then. We never once thought, what if our flight is canceled and we don't make it back for the show? <laughs> it was the second day of our trip, a Tuesday. I know that we got to the park. We were at Universal Studios, by the way, as soon as it opened, so around 8 or 8.30 in the morning. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. We were getting ready to see the Muppets. I remember that. It's not a ride, but a 3D situation. I have an extreme astigmatism, and 3D doesn't really do it for me, but I liked the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids one, and what am I talking about? Why is this what I remember? But that's how it goes, isn't it? So one of my friends needs to use the restroom before the Muppets, and while he's in there, a janitor confides to my friend that something is happening in New York. A plane crashed and hit one of the World Trade Towers, and so that means it had to be after 8.46 in the morning. My friend came out of the restroom, told us what he had just heard, and the next thing I know, we were watching the Muppets in an uneasy silence. I don't think we understood. I'm not making excuses, but it, it didn't make sense. It must be wrong. And there was also no way to check, and the line just kept moving. So there's no clocks at Disney, no televisions or newspapers or any other signs of the outside world because the outside world is not magical. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free, wish I could be part of that world. So we just kept walking around. Our parents weren't calling us yet. Disney continued to churn its magic. We, we couldn't find that janitor. So for the next 45 minutes, an hour, we were at Disney World. 1,100 miles away, at 9.03 a.m., the second tower was struck, 17 minutes after the first strike. At 9.37, the Pentagon was hit. We knew none of this. I mean, yet we thought there had been a bad accident, an isolated, tragic event, so we just kept moving through our lives, following the plan for that day. I think about this time between knowing and not knowing the most. My mom was uh, cleaning the oven when she heard on the radio that JFK had been shot. What was I doing between the knowing and the not knowing? I was on a ride called the Tower of Terror. It was our favorite ride. 
We may have even you know, gone on it twice before the park started shutting down and the workers closed all of the doors, their hands uniformly behind their backs, refusing to answer anyone's questions on the way out. Hey, hey, do you know what's going on? Right this way, sir. There's a tram waiting for you at the gate. Is this about New York? I mean, do you know what's happening? If you would just step through here, we will have you to your rooms shortly. Sweeps of all the parks were happening with Disney employees linking arms and literally shepherding patrons through the gates, all the while refused to tell anyone what had happened. And maybe they also didn't know. Be our guest, be our guest, put our service to the test. <laughs> Do you know the Tower of Terror ride? The ride takes place in an old Hollywood hotel and you're ushered into an elevator that climbs to the top floor and then drops. At various points, it stops and the doors slide open so you can just see how high you are. It's a ride at Disney that simulates falling to your death from a tower. At 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapsed. At 10.30 a.m., the North Tower collapsed. I remember getting in this ride uh, on this elevator, and as the doors closed, a phone rang. Oh, come on, said the woman directly behind me. And the guy answered, and there was a collective sigh in the elevator. How rude. What? I can't hear you, he said in full voice. What? The Pentagon? And then the elevator dropped. It's a small world after all. I got a call from my mom. Get the hell out of there, was how she greeted me. We're, we're on our way out now, I, I told her. Just get out of Disney World. We're under attack. And we just kept walking, quiet mostly, out of the park, looking up at the sky, wondering if the next target was Disney, an iconic American place. Well, I hope the pool is still open, said a woman behind me. I think about that woman a lot. Wandering free, wish I could be. Part of that world. And then we were on a tram, and we were back in our room. And like so many of us outside of New York, my friends and I watched the television in our hotel room, four adults sitting at the end of unmade beds, leaning toward the screens, not taking our eyes off the images that continued to play over and over. And honestly, if I had known how often these images would play, seemingly on a loop, for literal months, I would have looked away, just spared some of my energy. A whole new world. At one point, one of us looked out the window and saw a line of cars heading out of town, as far as we could see. A scary image, and it suddenly occurred to us that we didn't have a plan. The flights were grounded. How do we get home? Because suddenly, that's all any of us wanted more than anything in the world was to get home. So we called the rental car place, and the conversation went something like this. Can we just drive our car to Minneapolis, you know, just like, and then just drop it off there? There was silence. Uh, yeah, sure. We called back and asked again to see if we had heard it right. And so we drove all night, 15 hours straight, not planning to stop until we arrived at my friend's childhood home in Ohio. We would rest there and then do the rest of the trip and get back to Minneapolis. It got particularly dark in more ways than one as we drove through Kentucky. The radio, all we had to keep us awake and focused, was a stream of religious programming that spoke of the heathens and monsters among us. 
And I won't describe the signs we saw hung at gas stations all the way from Florida to Ohio, but most of them contained the words, go home. We did make it home, and we did perform on Thursday night. We were in agony over whether it was the right thing to do. How do we do this? How do we perform Sex in the Cities, the Edina monologues, on the Thursday after September 11th? The lights went down, and the audience was so quiet. I remember standing backstage, stage left, waiting to enter, not breathing well. The piano played, the lights came up, the first line, and then laughter. And it was a, it was a kind of release. It went on longer than the joke warranted, to be honest. The laughter said, we are here, and in this moment, we can laugh. Because outside the doors of that theater, nothing would ever be the same again. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will live as one. Shannon Custer, Rhiannon Fitzstratus. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Dear Liz, I'm writing to tell you how amazing it has been to watch you stand up to those in your party who are trying to shut you down for choosing to do what's right for our democracy. I mean, really, it's pretty incredible, right? I mean, as you said in your concession speech on August 16th, after not winning your Idaho primary, quote, a few years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear, but would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election and it would require that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. I'm a conservative Republican. I believe deeply in the principles and the ideas on which my party was founded. I love its history, and I love what our party has stood for. But I love my country more." Unquote. Yes, you do, Liz. Yes, you do. You love your country. You do. But I know it hasn't been easy. Gosh, you were removed from your House leadership roles because you criticized the former president, and they ousted you with a voice vote. A voice vote? That's pretty harsh, just with the voice. But that's what, that you didn't care. You said, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. You know why? Because I love my country more. And you were condemned for signing up for the January 6th commission, but were you cowed? No, in fact, you know what? You even signed up to be the co-chair because you said you love your country. And then you were censured by Wyoming Republicans and you said, you know what, who cares? I love my country, right? And then after the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago, one of the former president's lawyers said that it all had happened because Liz Cheney lost her primary and you said, I was, what, what the hell? 
No, actually, I, actually that's, I, I said that because it's like crazy. Anyway, you probably said something stronger, Liz, and then you said, I love my country. You are winning, Liz. You are so winning. Well, actually, technically, you, you lost. But sometimes we have to lose to win. Right, Liz? Sometimes you take the fall for the truth to fly. Sometimes you lose it all just to make it right. You go off road cause the road map changed You get lost but then find a new way You find out that there's more to you Than the side you belong to You always have a choice To turn around Go north or south What better time than now you know, this reminds me, Liz, when I was in the sixth grade, and there was a group of girls in my class who started a club. And they bought a book to put the names of all the girls in their club. And you know, well, I wanted to be in the club. I mean, who didn't want to be in the club, right? But they told me that I had to know the rules first before I could be in their club. Okay, what are the rules? Well, the biggest rule was that I had to invite all of them over to my house after school and serve them snacks. Okay, I, easy, I can do that. But no, 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 the snacks couldn't be just any snacks. They had to be Hostess Ding-Dongs or Ho-Hos. Okay, so we rarely had Ho-Hos in the house, but sometimes we had Ding-Dongs. So I told my mom, I said, okay, we have to buy Ding-Dongs or we could buy Ho-Hos so I could have the girls from the new club over after school. Now, my mom was sort of weirdly suspicious of this club, and she said, you know, I don't like the sound of this whole thing. And I was like, well, why? I mean, what's wrong with having some girls over for ding-dongs and ho-hos? And you know ding-dongs and ho-hos, right, Liz? Ding-dongs are like the chocolate cake discs with the cream filling, and the ho-hos are like the rolled chocolate cake with the cream inside. So anyway, we bought the ding-dongs, and the girls came over, and the whole thing felt a little weird, like I was being watched. But anyway, so the next day at school, they told me I was in. You're in the club. Yay, I'm in the club. So at recess, the club got together in the playground, and a girl who was not in the club, and a girl who was often kind of by herself, anyway, she came up and asked if she could be in the club. And I was like, sure. I mean, like, everybody can be in the club, right? I mean, you just like, sure, come on in. All you have to do is just like have ding-dongs and ho-hos at your house. But no, 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 the leader of the club said to this girl, no, you can't be in this club because you're weird and you have odd clothes. And all of a sudden, everybody else in the club was going, yeah, you're weird, and you wear like icky clothes. You can't be in this club. And of course, she started crying, and she ran off across the playground, and I was stunned. Like, what the hell is going on? What is this? And then one of the girls pointed to me and said, you didn't join in. And they were like, oh, yeah, you didn't say anything, Susan. I was Susan back then. And I said, well, I don't get what's going on. What's, what's wrong with your clothes? I mean, maybe her family doesn't have a, any money or, I mean, what's it? And the leader said, you know, if you don't want to be in this club, that's okay. But if you do want to be in this club, you have to do what we're doing. Otherwise, you're out. Okay, but I could rarely hear that. All I could think of that poor girl crying across the playground and somebody needed to go apologize. So I walked over there and I said, you know what? I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. I had no idea that they were going to tease you like that. And I just, I, I just thought, the club was about hanging out at each other's house after school and eating ding-dongs. And she said to me, well, you know, they're going to pick on you now. And I remember pausing for just a second to kind of think about that and thinking, hmm, 
yeah. And then thinking, no, you know what? That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. I don't even want to be in that stupid club. You know, they're the weird ones, I told her. And she said, yeah, they're the weird ones. And they did tease and taunt me. And my mom was right about the club. And really, <laughs> how many ding-dongs and ho-hos can you eat every day after school? I mean, really, think about it. So I got bullied for not being willing to become a bully. So I get it, Liz. I get it. I get being pushed out of a club that you don't want to even be in anyway. Sometimes you take the fall for the truth to fly Sometimes you lose it all just to make it right You go off-road and the road map changed You get lost, then you find a new way You find out that there's more to you than the club you belong to You always have a choice to turn around Go north or south, what better time than now? So Liz, there were Democrats in Wyoming who switched parties so they could vote for you in their primary. Now that is validation that you are winning. Lots of us on the progressive side had been so inspired by your courage to get to the truth in those January 6th hearings. I mean, yes, democracy needs to be saved. The rule of law needs to prevail. Truth needs to win. You are not going to blindly follow the pack. No, because you are Liz Cheney. You could be president. But before we go there, can we talk a little about your voting record? In the past year and a half, you voted no for the assault weapons ban of 2022. No to the Right to Contraception Act. No to Protecting Our Kids Act, that's about guns. No to the Infant Formula Supplemental Appropriations Act, that's the supply chain thing. The Affordable Insulin Now Act, well actually you didn't vote at all on that one, I don't know what that means. The Honoring Our Pact Act, you voted no in March, and then yes in July after Mr. Stewart came to Washington. And then you voted no for the freedom to vote, the John Lewis Act, the Build Back Better Act, the Family Violence Prevention and Services Improvement Act, the Women's Health Protection Act, that's access to safe abortion. Now again, you didn't vote at all on this. You voted no for the Protect Older Workers Against Discrimination Act, that's an ageism thing, the Paycheck Fairness Act, Workers, American Dream and Promise Act, DACA, American Rescue Plan, COVID, For the People Act, Voting, the George Floyd Policing Act, says it all, Equality Act, and you voted no for the reauthorization of, let's say it with me, the Violence Against Women Act. Liz, come on, you're a lifelong conservative, but in your concession speech in August, you said, quote, it is said that the long arc of history bends towards justice and freedom. That's true, but only if we make it bend, unquote. Okay, so my initial thought, Liz, was that you were referring to Dr. King's The Arc of the Moral Universe is Long, but it bends towards justice. But I did a little digging and I found that King was actually quoting the abolitionist minister Theodore Parker, who in 1853 said, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. 
I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience, but from what I see, I'm sure it bends towards justice. Now, Liz, you added the freedom to that line, and you also said in your speech, quote, ladies and gentlemen, freedom must not and will not die here. So Liz, I know freedom is like a really, really big thing to you, really big. So by freedom, right, I'm assuming you mean the freedom to live without fear of being gunned down by an AK-47 at a grocery store, right? And the freedom to know that your doctor can't refuse you a life-saving abortion based on where he lives, or the freedom to have enough to feed your baby, or the freedom to become a productive citizen regardless of your country of origin, the freedom to make your own reproductive choices, the freedom just to vote, the freedom to not be abused or killed by your partner or anyone else, right? So by freedom, that's what you meant, right, Liz, right? Liz, 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 the courage you've shown as you stand your ground against those in your party who are marching lockstep towards authoritarianism is unbelievable. You're a winner on that, Liz. But I truly believe you could be a leader if you were willing to, as you say, make that arc of history bend towards justice and freedom for all of us. Yours truly, Sue Scott. If not now, then when will freedom ring again? If not you, then who will stand up for the truth? Sometimes you take the for the truth to fly Sometimes you lose it all To make things right You go off road And the road map changed You get lost Then you find a new way You find out that there's more to you Than the side you belong to You always have a choice To turn around Go north or south What better time than now Zippy Lasky, Zippy Lasky Thank you Zippy, thank you for that beautiful song Please welcome our guest contributor for tonight Peg Gilfoyle Peg, come on up In the co-op, sometimes the colors in the co-op seem brighter. The lettuce greener, the dairy whiter, the bulk foods more like themselves somehow in their bins, more bean-like, more nut-like. The orderly procession of cartons well-lit behind doors that release a puff of cool air when opened. The light coming through the windows always seems like morning light, and sometimes the smiles wider, the workers more robust as they carry those cartons along the aisles. I think this way because I am a romantic, and also I have never worked in a co-op, which I am pretty sure is a pretty hard job. It might also be because the workers are often so young 
and seem to be at the beginning of their work lives. I had one of those the other day at the co-op checkout. I set down my almond milk and asparagus spears before a beautiful specimen of young womanhood, vibrant, lively, with a head of tousled bright pink hair and a truly startling set of earrings. You don't like to stare, but I stared, and then I asked her about the earrings. I, I can't quite make them out, I said. She held still for a minute, and then we both started to laugh. Her earrings said, stay back, Karen, exclamation point. <laughs> the words printed on a good-sized pink spray bottle, nozzle at the ready, to repel any Karens that wandered in for kombucha. Now, from omnipotent Wikipedia, Karen is a pejorative term for a woman, usually white, perceived as entitled or demanding beyond the scope of what is normal. Depictions may include demanding to speak to the manager. And her earrings said, stay back, Karen. We laughed some more. I have another pair, she said. They make my uncle mad. I went home and looked them up on the artist's Etsy site. They're in the shape of a juice box with a straw. The box is labeled conservative tears, 0% decency, no science added. <laughs> so now I'm imagining this young woman at a picnic table, her earrings flashing in the sun with a sulky uncle nearby. It reminded me of a sign carried by youth at the March for Science a few years ago. The sign said, what do we want? Time travel. When do we want it? Irrelevant. <laughs> Wit, I would say, is in style in any generation, and it's an awfully good bridge builder between strangers. Stay back, Karen, exclamation point. the job seeker. I was in a nearly empty small town supermarket some weeks ago, and I fell into a conversation with the checkout girl. I am always falling into conversations. It was a rather downscale grocery, and all the women workers were wearing drab smocks. This young lady was not yet 20, I'd guess. She had disheveled hair, rather pale skin, and a bright grin. When she was packing my things, she smiled and said I should not worry, she would not squish my bread. I smiled and said, thanks, I have every confidence, and that she was doing a good job of customer relations with me. She said that was good because she was looking for work, and then our conversation took off. What kind of work are you looking for? Anything that would give me 40 hours and benefits. You don't have that at the market? No, they just give me enough hours so that I don't get benefits. Do you live locally? Yes, on a farm outside of town. I expressed my opinion that she would do well at whatever she chose. She confided that she had a job interview in a few days with a company that manufactures automotive brake components. It would be on Wednesday. I said that I'd be thinking of her on Wednesday and wishing her well. She smiled and thought, and paused, and looked at me, and she asked me a question that I found shattering. Do you work there, she asked me, her face bright, 
with sudden hope and a touch of desperation. For a minute, I think, she believed that I would turn out to be a recruiter, come into the store by chance. Her story might take a new turn. Her life might take a new turn. I had to say no, and she absorbed that news without surprise or faltering. We parted as something like friendly strangers, and I did think of her on that Wednesday, and I'm thinking of her still, and I hope to heaven she got that job. And I also hope that appreciation and encouragement from a friendly stranger, just that tiny amount, might have given her a boost, a bit of oomph, when she left the farm and drove to that interview, having picked out clothes she thought would make the best impression, no smock. Can you hear me, universe? Hire her, hire her, and let it be a good job. And can you also hear this, universe? Encourage her, kindly encourage her. Thank you. Peg Gilfoyle, thank you, Peg. Thank you, thank you so much. So these stories are from your essay series called Motley Peg. And tell us what the impetus was for you to write these sort of impressions of everyday life that you're having. Well, when my children were little, I had a rule that at the end of every day, I would say to them, tell me one thing that you saw or heard or observed or learned today that was beautiful or special or new or funny, something, one thing. Because I wanted them to learn to lift out of the daily those moments of beauty. And then I like to do that too. Yeah. So right. Motley Pig is a, is a series about the things that we see that, are, that we lift out of the quotidian. Yes. You've also published a book of essays. Mm -hmm called Singing All the Verses, Essays from a Mid-American, which got a glowing review from the Midwest Book Review. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Peg. Thank you. All of, uh, all of Peg's writing can be found at peggilfoyle.com. Okay, so our musical guest, Rayanan Fitzraditz, is coming up to share more stories and more music. So, Rayanan, you... Um, you were telling me about the evolution, uh, your own evolution, mm -hmm. as a human, as a songwriter, and you were telling me about three things. Yeah, the three things that I find myself most often writing about and making bridges between with my lyrics are family, feminism, and nature. And that sort of is reflective of my own evolution as a human being, mostly because of the scope of my awareness, right? I started out just knowing my family. I, um, wrote a lot about it in the beginning because I have a, a parents with a rare disability and that really informed a lot of my upbringing yeah. and a lot of my perspective and then feminism as my perspective of the world grew and I realized I was raised by my mom I have four younger sisters women are going to be very important to me I should stand up for them and uh, do a lot of work uh, for women's equality so I wrote a lot about that and now yes yeah. yes yes yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> And then nature is sort of my guiding force in life. I don't go by much more of a dogma than mother nature rules. So, okay, you're the oldest child. I am. And you were telling me how you got messages growing up that you were mm, quick to speak your mind, had big opinions, said everything really loudly. <laughs> and then you started noticing that people were reacting to you like 
maybe you were too blunt. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really get a lot of bullying or being put down or, or anything from people in reaction to my bluntness, which I think of as working through ideas without really having thought them through very well. I just was learning so much and was so passionate about of the course. world and I yes. felt like I needed to express my opinions. <laughs> and I was getting a lot of raised eyebrows and a lot of uh, sort of like stepping back from me. And yeah, I was the oldest. This was, I'm specifically thinking about my late teen years when everyone's just sort of putting it all out there anyway. I yeah. mean, if you're a theater kid like I was, that's what you're doing at 17. Um, so yeah, I, and I, it sort of shut me down for a little while, to be honest. Oh, uh, yeah. I didn't want people, I didn't want to believe that I was making people feel those feelings. And so I kind of shut down for a little while in hopes that I would be more observant. And I discovered a way through my art to think more about the messages that I was putting out into the world. And this it affected my lyric writing. I started putting these ideas into lyrics, filtering them, letting the ideas percolate before I would put them out into the world. I stopped being quite so blunt. Sometimes blunt is good. Mm -hmm. I just want to put that mm -hmm. out there. Sometimes blunt is good. So It was an early lesson. There's more nuanced now. Oh, no, I'm I sure, agree of with course. you. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you're in the midst of creating a rock opera. I that am. That is about uh, your life uh, through all these songs. Mm -hmm. And you're going to give us a sneak peek mm -hmm. of a couple of songs mm -hmm. that you're using through the storytelling mm -hmm. medium. Yeah, one of them, um, when, if and when the My Rock Opera is finished. It uh, will be. It, it will, will be. be finished. <clears throat> it will be. Uh, this is the opening song. And it, it, it's a, the very first verse of a lullaby of my mom singing to me. Go to sleep, my baby. Go to sleep, my girl. Your mama's lost her sweetheart, so you are my whole world. He could not live another day, though I asked him to. And when I woke from my grief, I'd manifested you. Wow. Okay. Wow, yes. And that's only part of the song. So, um, so the next song is, you're talking about a trilogy. Mm -hmm. So um, part of this evolution of, of big ideas that I've been exploring is as I discovered my feminism, I found myself turning my teenage poetry scribblings into lyrics and writing these feminist anthems. And now I kind of find myself with a trio of feminist anthems and I wanted to share with you a piece of one of them. Yes. Uh, this one's called Oh Woman. Oh woman, there is a place for you. Oh woman, there is a place Oh, woman, there is a place for you But I cannot leave the way I cannot leave the way I'm just going to give you a little chorus. Yeah. <laughs> lead the way, Rihanna, lead the way. 
Okay, and then this this the second one. Second one, one yes. Yeah. And this was further along in my development. That last song was the first song I think I ever wrote. I started it as a teenager, and the lyrics have changed many, many times over the years. But this next song is a song called Strong Woman that I wrote when I had a band called Lingua Luna um, years ago. Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory, so I'm just going to start it. Okay, do it, do it, do it. On the street the other day, reflecting on a window, saw a version of myself, one that I used to know. When a man walked by, said, oh, that girl is gone, what stands before me now is a strong woman. I said, what do you mean? Is that an insult or a line? In a world where wisdom one means an eye for an eye, I do not respect words that flatter or they demean. You look me straight in the eyes, and that's exactly what I mean. You're a strong woman, S-T-I-R-O-N-G. You get your business done and you don't need a thing from me. And that's only part of it. Yes. And now, song number three in the trilogy, <laughs> you are going to sing in full. Yes, in sing straight to, I promise. Yes. So here she is. And singing. And what's the name of this song? This one's called Lessons. It used to be called 21st Century Lessons, but I thought I would broaden it. It's just sure. Lessons, right. lessons exactly. for any era. Exactly. Go for it. Thank you. Thank you. My friend, he said to me, chivalry's dead, you see, and I don't know how to please. My single mother told me how to love her but no one else and she's she's working and sewing and the kids that she's growing a garden of miseducation she's teaching the bible but preaching survival which seems like a contradiction you got to look with the eyes of the old listen to the words of the bold you got to speak what's true to you to make a change in the world you were born into daughter's turned to stone cause she's out on her own with so many stars to reach for so overwhelming to throw your whole self in there are so many paths you'll ignore and then there are others who must become others presented with no other choice and in some places we don't see their faces and we wonder where is their voice you got to look with the eyes of the old Listen to the words of the bold You got to speak what's true to you To make a change in the world you were born into When the books have been written The truth is done spinning The pendulum's finally at rest our collective soul will calculate the toll and find out if we've passed history's test. You got to look with the eyes of the old. 
Got to look with the eyes of the old Listen to the words of the bold You got to speak what's true to you To make a change in the world you were born Born into Rayon, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Please welcome our spoken word artist, Brittany Delaney. Brittany, come on up. Um, my light mentor told me there are poems that you perform and then there are pieces that you share. Um, and I wrote this sort of attaching myself to this idea of ambiguous loss. Um, hearing that term is the first time that so much has made sense to me about the way that I feel living life with chronic illness, um, you know, being post-stroke, being on round five of chemo in the last two years, um, having to, you know, readjust the life that I thought I would have, and, and even coming out of a rough childhood, a, a childhood I never experienced, um, this sense of grief that I couldn't quite explain. So thank you for that. Um, I'm going to share this piece. I often find myself trying to paint my own self-portrait. A beautiful collection of words that know nothing of terms like diagnosis or lupus or stroke. Nothing but healthy crosswords and crossroads no matter the direction you travel. Vertical growth, diagonal reach, perpendicular peace, nothing but health in every life trajectory. I am still learning what it means to accept things not quite turning out the way I expected and how to turn this turbulent dance with grief into something more like a waltz, a sway that isn't well understood by those around me who also came up in a culture of toxic positivity, a wine I will do to comfort myself while trying to contend with those who swear I just need to be grateful I'm still alive. Folks who have never had to understand how much it cost in peace to keep almost dying and what you lose off of that cliff every time you approach the hangar, how it feels to watch the life you knew you could build become the structure your health will never allow you to enter again, and yet everyone still expects you to keep adding new floors. I am trying to imagine myself on canvas with familiar possibilities, different from my current 3D existence, my smile without hesitancy, all my teeth showing, no weather texture on my skin. I imagine my keloids are just confused laugh lines, a happy woman. I try to imagine who I would be if all I had was joy, and not in a fantasy sort of way, but the way one would be if joy had been the front runner in their life, an untethered brown girl who only had to care for herself so caring for others was more an honor and less a responsibility. I try to see me soft and malleable and able to accept disappointment like a Monday morning after a restful Sunday with an open chest for my love and my children to fall into without splinter, my ribs being more than cages, locking the one I love out and keeping me in and my arms weightless and open to new possibilities that aren't as great as the ones I promised I would build for myself if I made it through my trauma still breathing. I try to see me safe watered and cared for finally better than the roses we watch wilt on our mother's dining room tables i try to see me free nothing to fight for but the sunshine an entire lily with petals so mesmerizing you wouldn't want to buy me cage me lock me up in glass jars or give me away as an apology for bad behavior just let me be admired i can hear how beautiful i would be in notes that are indecipherable by those who live in healthy bodies for free 
I can hear the lyrics packed full of stories that don't end in warnings and lullabies that don't seem like forever might catch up before the morning sun rises. A well-rested woman wrapped in blankets made of something more than all the red flags I missed. A happy woman who isn't constantly trying to figure out what happiness is, free. No longer worried about those who will choose or marry me or handle me with care, frolicking through the glass like my bones aren't made of glass in a body that is confused about what it means to protect me, a body that hasn't had to learn wholeness through the lens of constant shatter. I tried to imagine who and what I could be if joy had rocked me to sleep at night and greeted me in the morning, if anybody loved me in the way that I am deserving, if grief wasn't my closest friend and I was constantly living my life hoping I am on the mend. I try because I want you to see what I have never had that has also somehow left me. See, my bones limber enough to decide what muscle memory I want to reflect in my hugs, a backbone made of vines. Could you see how beautiful I would be if I could touch without rugged hands, cautionary fingertips, and jaded eyesight? Could you see how beautiful it would be if I were gentle, without practice, unnatural, blameless as summertime puddles and childhood memories of jumping in them? See me beautiful like the first I love you, or the breath of a newborn, or a lover who is true, or a story without hate, or a child without trauma or a childhood at all or being believed the first time or two seconds into a good hug or being loved by someone who knows that love is a verb or being known by someone without ever having to say a word I am trying to paint me with pieces that are still imaginary without the darkness passed down through my double helix without the storms that rained in my early homes and left me with a wilted start without shields ready for war when I want to love I am trying to paint me this way in hopes that life will imitate art and this will have a chance to become my reality. Healthy, smiles without hesitancy, all teeth showing, a beautiful collection of words that know nothing of broken terms, nothing but healthy crosswords and crossroads no matter the direction you travel. Vertical growth, diagonal reach, perpendicular peace, nothing but health in every life trajectory. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you so much. Just beautiful. All right. Please welcome my guest for the conversation, Dr. Pauline Boss. Pauline, come on up and join us here. Hi, Pauline. Hi, Sue. Thank you so much for coming. You're, you're welcome. It's my honor. It's lovely to see so, so many people and, in fact, quite a few that I know. Oh, good. Um, I'm just going to run through your bio a little bit here. Okay. So you are a professor emeritus at the University of Minnesota and a fellow in the American Psychological Association. You've practiced family therapy for over 40 years. Mm -hmm. uh, with your groundbreaking work in research and practice, you coined the term ambiguous loss in the 1970s. And since then, have developed and tested the theory working with families of the missing physically or psychologically. Your work is known around the world. You've written eight uh, wonderful books, the most recently released in 2021, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in the Time of Pandemic and Change. You were also married to our local father of improv, Dudley Riggs. Yes. And so, yes, 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 yes. So first, give us your best description of ambiguous loss. Well, it's very simple. Ambiguous loss is an unclear loss. It has no death certificate. It has no verification of life or death. 
The physical ambiguous loss I, I studied first were families of the men missing in action in Southeast Asia, soldiers missing in action. Yeah. And the second, in the 1990s then, I studied um, veterans in, at the Minneapolis Veterans Home who had Alzheimer's disease. I studied their families, so that was psychological ambiguous loss when the person is there, but not there as they used to be. Yeah. So that's it, that's what it is. And while I studied those kinds of things at first, now around the world, it's, it's studied with any kind of ambiguous loss, physical or psychological. Yeah. Um, and it, it ranges all over the spectrum yeah. uh, for what kinds of things are ambiguous losses. And right now, as you read the news or hear the news, uh, migrants who have to up, uh, uproot themselves for safety around the world, uh, there's a great deal of ambiguous loss going on. And I'm working frequently worldwide from the 9-11 um, originally. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the tsunami in Japan and now in Ukraine and Kosovo and so on. You know, I'm so fascinated by how this started. So you were uh, working um, on your doctoral degree in Madison, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. and you were studying human development. And you were interested at the time and, and kind of focusing your dissertation on, on father absence in intact families. Yes, I was studying corporate executive families at the time. Yeah. And in, in therapy, I was studying with a, a well-known psychiatrist, Carl Whitaker, in Madison at the time. And uh, I noticed that fathers were angry about being there. The child was the identified patient. And the fathers would say in the 1970s, the children are mother's business. I shouldn't be here. I should be at my job. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. where I first came up with the idea of a person being there but not being there. Yeah. Psychological father absence in intact families. But my professor at Madison said to me, Pauline, it's about more than fathers. Find a higher level term. Yeah. And eventually I came up with ambiguous loss. So then what happened after that, you're delivering a paper. The military for the Center for Prisoner War Studies, they were in the audience. Yes. And they said, if you could reverse this and study physical absence, Right. They would have data on the families of the missing soldiers uh, in action in Vietnam, the MIAs in Vietnam. Correct. And you decided to change that. Well, my committee did, too. As, yeah. a, as a graduate student, yeah. I didn't have that much power. <laughs> I think you should change that, Pauline. I think that's what you should do. Uh, yes. So, so, yes, I was out in San Diego with a social worker from the Naval Health Research Institute going up and down the coast interviewing wives of men who were missing in action. It would have broken your heart. Really. Yeah, when I mean, you were telling me about, talking about this earlier, you were saying, well, you know, it was academic work. But yeah, I mean, obviously it had to be very emotional as well. You were dealing with uh, the missing in action. We, you know, I had a story, I had a very good friend. Her father was shot down in 1968 and never found. They didn't know, was he dead? Was he captured? And then in 1992, Ron and I are watching Nightline with Ted Koppel, and there on the TV, being interviewed by Ted Koppel, are our friends from Arizona, and they have found pictures and dog tags and the, and the uniform and everything in a war museum. It was a diplomatic trip by John Kerry, and they found all these things in a war museum in Hanoi. 
and the pictures show that he had, he had clearly died right after his plane went down. So for all those years, all that unknowing, but it's just, I can only imagine, it's just like, how do you grieve, how do you mourn, how do you, how do, you do that? Well, that's what the new book is about. Okay, well, we'll just go, okay, good night, everybody. We're just going to go read the book. No, I get it. Uh, there um, is no closure. Right. But then there actually is no closure even when you have a verified death. Right. Especially if you were attached to the person who died. Yeah. I mean, you remember them forever. And so the new research in the area of grief, which I don't do, but I read it, is that uh, you don't have to get over grief. Yeah. You live with it. Yeah and that it's like oscillations that get farther and farther apart as time goes on. But that, you know, 20 years from now, you may still have a tear if you have something that reminds you of that person, and that is normal grief. Yeah. I'm afraid that society is pathologizing grief, and so I make a, a, a plea for knowing that grief is normal and you do not have to get over it. You do not have to find closure. Right. That's the myth of closure. You know, speaking of 9-11, you were telling me about when you were invited to New York right after, after the tragedy by the SEIU Labor Union Yes. Uh, to deal with the workers who had worked in the building yes. and who had died in their families. Yes, and the reason was that the president of 32BJ, which is part of SEIU, his wife was my student, and oh. so he knew that I worked with the families of the missing and asked if I would come into New York uh, and I brought students with me and eventually other professors as well uh, and worked with the families in the uh, Union Hall uh, for uh, off and on for two years. Uh, yeah. And we had family meetings, which I pretty much copied after the ones we had with the veterans who's, who had Alzheimer's disease. That was psychological ambiguous yeah. loss. But now in New York, it was physical ambiguous yeah. loss. And so there's improvisation because we didn't have a plan beyond that experience, yeah. earlier experience. So sometimes when you're working in the field, like in Kosovo or around the world, wherever I, I go, in China, in Japan, it's improv. And yeah, I learned sure. that from Dear Dudley. Yeah, and of course, <laughs> of course, of course. Um, I wanted to bring up one story that you, you talk about blame and how we so, often, uh, we so often want a reason, an answer, certainty. That's the reason this happened. That's the person to blame. And so often we blame ourselves. And you tell a story about one of the wives of the workers uh, for the World Trade Center, and he, he went down with the towers, and that he had overslept his alarm clock that morning and had gone into work later than usual and then was in the tower and went down with the tower and that she was blaming herself. Why hadn't she awoken him earlier to go to work? And, uh, and you were working with her on that. And then later you checked in with her and she said she dawned on her that he always set the alarm. So it wasn't her fault. And yet it doesn't bring him back, it doesn't, you know, and yet it... But the punchline, you're missing it. Tell me. When she said that to me, she said he just wanted another hour oh. to be with us. Yeah, right, 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 right. And, and we need to find meaning in our losses, whether they're ambiguous or clear losses. But this was a year after we had been oh. working and uh, meeting every couple weeks in and having family meetings, three generations of families that had missing loved ones. 
And she came from this self-blame yeah. period. Yeah. Uh, she had a, a little newborn baby when I first saw her, crying and blaming herself. And a year later, after talking with all these other families there, and I must say the elders in the group, the grandmothers and grandfathers, were very helpful to the young, young parents who had missing loved ones. And she told that story, yeah. as you said. But then she said, yeah. he just wanted one more hour to be with us before he died. Yeah. So that's what we're after when we do this therapy or field work, is we want a transformation in the story, in the meaning, so that it's one that isn't self-blaming or blaming somebody else. Yeah. It's a story you can live with and tell your children for the rest of your life that is a story of resilience, actually. Yeah. There's a, a passage in, in a book that you wrote called Lost Trauma and Resilience that you published in 2006. Mm -hmm. And you share some beautiful insights into that time working near Ground Zero in 2001. And I have asked um, Pauline if she would just read this passage from this book. Go ahead. Yes, this is the, uh, the book that therapists use to study from. So I wrote this after 9-11. Uh, and this is in the preface. On those early days, I looked out of the window from the 21st floor of the labor union building where we were working with the families. The smoke was still rising from ground zero. I still remember the smell. Hmm. I hungered for another view, but only later did I find a more comforting one. At a friend's high-rise home in lower Manhattan in the late afternoon sun, I saw the Statue of Liberty, the same statue that welcomed my father and my maternal grandparents into the New York Harbor, where my family life had begun in the United States. I felt a deep calm. Hope and loss had merged for them, and now for me too. Out of this insight came renewed strength. Many of the families we worked with had come to this shore like many of my elders, hoping for a better life. By uprooting, they too had lost contact with parents and siblings. After 9-11, they faced an ambiguous loss even more horrendous. Could they regain their resiliency and strength while being cut off from loved ones from faraway lands? Thankfully, with family and community-based interventions, many did. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for reading that. Um, yes, thank you. You were telling me how growing up, what formed your thoughts about ambiguous loss and possibly the precursor to psychological father absence was the homesickness that you witnessed from your, yes. your father. Yes. I was born and raised in New Glarus, Wisconsin. Some of you may know that. Um, it's a Swiss village, and many people were immigrants even when I was a young girl there, and the Swiss dialect is still in my ear, and when I'm in Switzerland, I can speak it. Um, but my father was always uh, sad when a letter came from Switzerland, and especially if a letter with a black border on it came, which some of you may know means there was a death in the family. So he would be grieving, but I didn't know the people he was grieving for. Yeah. Because it was first the Depression, he couldn't get back to Switzerland. And then World War II, 
even telephone calls weren't allowed. Only the military mm -hmm. could use mm -hmm. the phone line. So he was totally cut off from his family for many decades. And um, I think I grew up around ambiguous loss. The, the people in the village were all singing songs of homesickness and so on. Yeah. And so I think that's where I, I lived with it as a child. And so even in graduate school, maybe that's when it came into my cognitive thinking, but I think I experienced it earlier. Also, you talk about when you were 19, your little brother, who was 13 years old, mm -hmm. dies of polio. Yes. And how significant that was. And especially you, this image that you paint of visiting him in the hospital when he's in an iron lung. Yes. It was a huge room, bigger than this, full of iron lungs, and everyone eventually died. Um, but Eddie died very quickly. Uh, it was my first traumatic loss. Mm -hmm. At age 19, I had a happy childhood, so I, I didn't have any, well, maybe I had a rabbit story, but I won't tell that. <laughs> but, a rabbit uh, story or rabbit no. story? Rabbit. Rabbit story, okay. But Eddie was my charge. I was the babysitter for my little brother, so I was a junior mother to him, so it was, it was terrible. Yeah. And so I write about that as well and what, what I learned from it. Yeah. You also talk about the day you find out that your older sister has passed from cancer. You know, I was just called into the office and they said, your sister died. <laughs> I knew she was going to die. Yeah. And then I, I let out a wail yeah. that came out of me. And then the department head came and comforted me. I, we dismissed the class and I was on the next airplane south. Yeah. Um, to my hometown. Uh, so that was much later in my life. Sure. But I believe that sibling relationships are uh, undercounted in the grief literature or in any literature about attachment. The longest human relationship is a sibling relationship. Oh, sure. Okay. It is. Yeah. And so when you lose a sibling, people don't talk a lot about that, but it can be horrendous, and it was for me. Hmm. Many of us are experiencing ambiguous loss just by the fact that we're aging. We're not what we used to be, hmm. uh, but we're still the same person, but we're not how or what we used to be. Many of us are caregivers for elders uh, who are, are um, slowly dying, slowly fading away. Um, in my case, it wasn't dementia, but it was Dudley had many, many physical ailments. He couldn't walk, um, and it's a long list. In the end, he died of a stroke, not of COVID. Um, but when you're in a caregiving situation, caring for somebody who also is no longer as they used to be, and you're no longer as you used to be, you might have been a professional who's now home doing this other work. So that ambiguous loss is also common in everyday life. Adoptions, divorce, yeah. are full of ambiguous loss. And one of the new areas of research right now is families where one of the children is transitioning gender. Yeah, yes. Now, the person who's tr transitioning doesn't have an ambiguous loss. In fact, they feel pretty good about it. Yeah. It's the family and the friends who are missing the person they thought they knew who is now different. It's, it's not a blaming right. idea. It's just that. It's based on stress. 
and that you have more stress because you can't quite figure out what, what's happening. Yeah. So, yeah. so there, there are uh, international ambiguous losses. Just open your paper. Yeah. They're all over. Can you imagine the families that split up in the Ukraine? Yes, And right. whether or not they'll ever find each other again. Right. Um, but also there's some right in this room and in our own homes. Um, and so we need to pay attention to that. And why is it important? It's important to have a name for what is stressing you. You can't cope with something until you have a name for what's wrong. So that's probably all I've done. Is to give it a name, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the idea of the myth of closure, and what I loved when I read your book, the latest book, was I felt like you gave me permission. Permission to not have to find that certainty. Right. People want certainty. We are a culture that doesn't like ambiguity. People from the East, however, um, and Tibet and places like that, can tolerate ambiguity more. So can the Ojibwe Indians up in, in Duluth. And yeah, we put a man on the moon and a camera in space and all of that, which requires certainty, which is very good. But now and then in life, something happens that is ambiguous and unclear and stays that way. And what I learned is that quite a few families can live with that. Amazing to see what they do to do that. Yeah. Um, but it's possible, and so that's what I was writing about. Yeah, and then, the, like you said earlier, the resilience. Take on the loss and also move on. It's both and. The both and. Okay, so the both and. I was just going to bring that up. So you talk about the, uh, the idea of absence and presence. Right. Yeah. Every time I read both and in the book, I'm thinking, yes, Anne. Right, Shannon? I'm yeah. thinking, yes, and, which is the number one rule in improv, is the yes, and. It's like you take what the other person is giving you, and you go, oh, yes, and. I worked for Dudley Riggs in the middle 80s. Shannon, you were there in the 90s. And such an incredible experience. I first met you at your wedding reception. Uh-huh. Yeah, 1988. 88. Yeah, your uh -huh. wedding reception. So to me, it's just interesting, because the similarities with improv and the work you're doing. Yes, and you know, all of you can use that both end when you're in a stressful situation. You know, I both hated the isolation of the pandemic and I also learned some new things. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we, you mentioned, you said, um, you know, in town I'm kind of known as just Dudley Riggs' wife. And, um, but internationally, okay, she's a renowned psychologist and family therapist who was honored, along with Hillary Clinton, for providing support to the families of the victims of 9-11. In New York. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. Big deal. And then you got that award money, and the award money is what you're putting... It was an award. It, it ended up being a fundraiser, which I oh, did not know. Oh, fundraiser, that's right, that's and right. And so at the end of that evening, which was beautiful, uh, they handed my dean a quarter of a million dollar check yeah. uh, to make sure that ambiguous loss was continued to be taught at the University of Minnesota. It's now up to 800,000, but it needs to be a million in order to be a, a professorship, and it needs to be two million, another million, in order to be a chair. Uh, and that would guarantee that it's taught. We can do that tonight, right? Yeah. We're in, right, we're right. in, we're in, right here, right here, right here. Uh, no, it's not necessary. I just love your support. You know, uh, 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 
the last paragraph of your book, the, this current book, The Myth of Closure, um, you say, how do I end a book about ambiguity and no closure? <laughs> and you said, your grandson said, just end it mid-sentence. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that was her son. Yeah. So how do we end this conversation about the myth of closure and no certainty? I guess we'll just stop talking and say thank you very much, Pauline. Well, thank, thank you, you very much. Me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you Pauline. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, that's our show, everybody. That's our show. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you again to Pauline Boss, Dr. Boss. Thank you so much. And Rayanne and Fixed Raditz. Thank you. And Shannon Custer. Come on up, guys. And thank you to uh, Peg Gilfoyle and Brittany Delaney and Zippy Lasky over here. And I want to thank our engineers, Dan Zimmerman and Dylan Payne and Lexi Carlson. Thank you for the light. Amanda Shavik, thank you for the 11 months that you've been taking our picture, wherever she is. She's going off to do other things. Thank you to our, our, our volunteer, Carolyn Denton, and this beautiful staff at the Women's Club. We will be back next month for another live island of discarded women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Thank you. Thank you.